today as we reopen God's Word once again and once again just continue in our study of the book of 2 Samuel, this week we come to chapters 20 and 21, and as Matt said in the introduction, there are all kinds of things going on in the life of David, all kinds of things inside the nation, all kinds of things outside the nation, all kinds of turmoil, turmoil that he himself in his greatly diminished state has caused and turmoil that he hasn't caused, but that he has to put up with. Oh, and then also, there's a drought. There is a great, big, huge, desolating, devastating drought. And I say it that way intentionally because that's not how we experience it here in South Florida when there's a drought, is it? It's not. I mean, I don't work for the water management district, you know, I'm not a landscaper. I'm sure there are all kinds of devastating effects of droughts here in South Florida that I just don't typically experience as we live through them very occasionally here, but uh, I'm really mostly unaffected, I'm not going to lie. I think the biggest challenge that we face when we face a drought in South Florida is this ethical challenge of, all right, am I going to comply with the water restrictions imposed upon me by the city, which basically says, Tom, you can wash your car like on Tuesday between 1.31 and 1.33 a.m., and you can water your yard on Thursday between, between 1.34 and 1.36 a.m., am I going to comply with the water restrictions or am I not? That's it. And here's the deal. For me, no problem. And here's why. Much to the chagrin of my, my wife, I hardly notice that we have a yard. <laughs> it's a fact. She said to me the other day, the bushes need trimming. I'm like, we have bushes? So she hates that. But some of you guys have trophy yards, and you know who you are. And here's the thing. We also know who you are because the last time there was a drought, this is what it looked like in your neighborhood. Brown yard, brown yard, brown yard, brown yard. Here's your yard. You ready? Green yard, amazing yard, all kinds of flowers yard, brown yard, brown yard, brown yard. And don't think we didn't notice. But, so either it's only raining at your house or... um, but it's really not that big a deal. In David's day, it was a really big deal. Okay, so in our day, we have a drought. All right, you know what? Our grass dies, at least if we're honest. Our grass dies. In David's day, they had a drought. Okay, the food supply for the whole nation dies. So put that in some scales. In our day, the little annuals that our landscaping guy comes and he plants for us seasonally, you know, and they're really pretty and they're cute and flowers and we love them and all that stuff. I see them in some of your yards. All right, they die. That's the deal. And we're miffed by that. We're a little upset. We probably call the city and say, hey, look, you know, is there some kind of an exception or something where if you've done landscaping, you can actually water your yard more? I mean, how does that work out for me? Because I've got like $400 in these annuals and so forth. And we're a little upset. We're inconvenienced. In their day, when there was a famine, when there was a drought, the livestock they depended upon for life died. So the point is, our landscaping suffers, and part of it dies. Their entire nation suffered, and part of it died. And the longer the drought lasted, the more death it brought. So we come to these stories, and well, chapter 21 in particular, and we think, man, I... I don't think I can relate to that kind of a drought. But as I thought about it, I thought, well, there are other kinds of droughts, and we experience those. I mean, I think that we can certainly relate to droughts that cause us to suffer, to droughts where the longer they last, 
the more death that they bring. I'll give you some examples. I think that many of us here today have experienced financial droughts. Maybe most particularly the last five or six years. It has really been rough for some folks. So here's the deal. Your yard didn't die, did it? You didn't turn the sprinklers off. You didn't go, good grief, you know, we're spending too much money on water to keep the grass green, so shut that down. That probably did not occur for you, but some of your dreams did die. Some of your plans did die. And here's what else. Some of your self-worth, some of your value in life, some of your sense of significance that you've been manufacturing for yourself and sinfully tying to your ability to store up and accumulate stuff, well, when that dried up, that also dried up. And the longer the drought lasts, the more death it brings. I think that many of us here today can relate to the idea of a relational drought. So your grass didn't die, but your marriage did, your friendship did, your relationship with a son or daughter or a parent or a child, a sibling, a co-worker did. I think some of us have experienced emotional droughts, and oftentimes those are connected, aren't they, to the other kinds of droughts, be they what other, other kind of drought it is. But so your sense of significance is tied to your finances, and your finance tank, and guess what? You tank. You go through the relational drought, and now you have an emotional drought in addition to it. But then there are some of us who can't figure out why we're in this emotional drought. We look at our lives objectively, and objectively, we have to acknowledge, it's, and it takes a little effort, we have to acknowledge that as we look around, okay, look, maybe it's not perfectly green, but it's pretty doggone green, and yet here's how it feels, brown. And your yard doesn't die, but some little piece of your heart, it seems like, does. And so, you know, as we continue today with our study of the book of Second Samuel, we come to chapters 20 and 21. And in 21, we find this drought that we actually can relate to. And if you've done your personal worship this week, which means if you've gone on our website, you have figured out what we call personal worship, it's real simple, and you have taken this passage of Scripture that we give to you at 12.01 a.m. on Monday, and you have systematically, according to this plan, prayerfully worked through it, reflectively worked through it, maybe even journaled through it, then you know that God is the one who brought this drought into the life of David, and not just into his life, but into the life of every single person in the nation of Israel. And that, too, is a point of commonality, because one of the things that we understand here at this church is that we came this morning to worship and to sing our praises to and to pray to and to sit under the word of an altogether sovereign God. A God for whom not one molecule in the entire universe is outside of His control. And so we need to own the implications of that. The implications of that are, among many, many others, that He controls everyone and everything and therefore every drought that I face or that you face in the entirety of our lives has been brought into our lives or at least allowed to enter by our great God and King and, oh, incidentally, As with them, so with us. God brought this drought into their lives for a very particular reason, and so it does with us. He has a purpose in absolutely everything that He does. And if you've done your personal worship, what was the purpose there? Well, the purpose there was to get them nationally to deal with an old sin. And I don't think that's always the case. Like, I don't think you can always tie your drought to some sin in your life, but I do think that a lot of times you can tie at least some piece of your drought to some sin in your life if God gives you the grace and the humility and, frankly, the courage necessary to stop looking out here and to look in here. That's a hard thing to do. 
particularly when there's been a lot of loss, you'll oftentimes that, okay, find that maybe you don't have the whole share of it, but there's sin in here that needs to be dealt with. Sin in here that needs to be brought to the Lord. Sin in here that needs to be put underneath the blood of Christ. There is an atonement, a covering for my sin and your sin and their sin that needs to occur and frankly make sense of this really odd story in Second Samuel chapter 21, at least for me. Because how did God deal with their sin? He didn't take and cause them to pay the people who actually committed the sins, he takes seven innocent, at least in regard to this particular sin, men. And they are hung on a tree on a mountain. And the sin of the nation is covered over. And the drought is lifted. Now, what is that if not the story of Jesus long before you ever get to the story of Jesus? Like a thousand years before the story of Jesus, you've got the story of Jesus all over the Old Testament, all over the Bible, all over these stories in chapter 20 and 21, but we see it here as well. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is God the Son who, through a supernatural conception, clothed himself in our humanity and entered into us as one of us, who as a man for mankind lived the only innocent life ever. And then on a tree, on a mountain, sacrificed willingly that only innocent life, that infinitely valuable life since he is also God for all who would claim His blood as the covering for their sin, His resurrection as the evidence of their eternal life. See, that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus has done. He's done it for me. He's done it for you if you call upon Him in faith. And that's how we see Him in this otherwise kind of odd story. But as I work through that story this week, I'm like, all right, what do I want to talk about here? Like, Lord, what do you want said? And I think that what we ought to talk about is what to do in the midst of the drought, because the droughts come. So what am I supposed to do when the drought comes? And hey, by the way, what am I not supposed to do when the drought comes? And here's the deal. We don't find the answer to that in 2 Samuel 21. We find the answer to that in Psalm 4, which is the prayer that the chronicler of 2 Samuel tells us in 2 Samuel 21 that David prayed in the midst of this drought. Guys, he wrote it down. And he gave it to the choir master that we might read it. And what he does in this is he comes to us and says, oh, okay, you guys are in a drought. All right, here's the deal. I've been through some droughts. You might have read that, 2 Samuel 21, kind of a cool deal. Well, not really. It was actually pretty devastating, but you get the idea. Here's what to do in the midst of a drought. And then here's what not to do. David says this, Psalm 4, verse 1, and I want you to feel the passion because it's huge. I want you to sense the desperation in this man's heart because it's massive. I want you to think about what it must have been like to be him, the king of the nation that is languishing under the drought year after year. Guys, the drought doesn't last three hours or three days or three weeks or three months. This drought, when this prayer is prayed, has lasted three years. How many seasons and cycles of harvest now have they missed? How great is the panic? 
at the height of it all, David cries out to God and he says, answer me when I call, O God. And you can hear his desperation. And I think you can relate to that, can't you? Because here's what droughts do, and they do it by design. And again, not by my design and not by your design. The reality is that if we got to design our own lives, there'd be no such thing as drought. Nobody would ever have a drought. We would never sign up for a drought, ever. By the design of God, here's what droughts do. They present us with riddles that we cannot solve. They, they offer to us questions that we, we can't even fathom, much less answer. They come to us with problems that in our own strength we cannot face and we cannot fix. And so then, what else do they do? Having brought us to the end of ourselves, they drive us not away from our king, but they drive us to the only one who can fix it. There's one solution. He's got it. There's an answer. He alone knows it. There's a fix, and he alone is the one who can do it. And so David, no doubt in distress, comes to God, and he says, answer me when I call, O God. And then he says, of my righteousness. And I think if we're really going to be honest, you know, in the midst of these droughts and all of the implications and pain and suffering and all of that stuff attached to that, in our anger, in our bitterness, in our cynicism, in our impatience, in our, you've got to be kidding me, not three hours, not three days, not three weeks, not three months, but we're now on three years. Okay, in the midst of that, righteous might not be the word that at least in our passion we would want to ascribe to the Lord, and yet, is He not altogether righteous? Even in the midst of our droughts, can we charge Him with fault? And He's more than that, David says. It's more penetrating. He says, O God of my righteousness, what is He acknowledging? That He isn't righteous, that I'm not righteous, that you, sorry if I don't know you, but you're not righteous, I'm sorry. Righteousness is God Himself, so that kind of rules us out de facto, does it not? And that we need righteousness. There is a covering for sin that must be done, and and I can't cover my sin. All I seem to be able to do is add to it. How about you? There's an issue that I can't fix, and neither can you. And the idea is the man on the tree on the mountain... Okay, his is the righteousness that we need. David is crying out for a righteousness of God because he knows that in his heart he needs it. He doesn't have it on his own. He's unworthy of anything but a drought, and he certainly is not worthy of having it lifted. And so he says, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. I'm claiming your righteousness. And then he says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. And this is another word picture. The word distress carries with it the image of, of an animal. And you can picture this because you've, you've probably done it at some point in your life that's been chased into a corner. And it's in distress. It has no way out. It's trapped. And it's fearful for its life. And its little heart is a beating and a beating, you know, and it's... You know, and it's freaking out because it thinks it's done, and maybe it is. It's entirely possible. Remember one time we had a session meeting here at the church, and um, a long, long time ago we had had a rat in the building. And our maintenance guy comes in, and he said, man, we got a rat in the building, and I don't know what to do. And one of our elders, Scott Sherrod, who's from Alabama, said, don't send a boy to do a man's job. And he got up. And he locked himself in the room with the rat. Don't mess with these guys from Alabama, man. 
It did not go well for Mr. Rat. I think he met a size 12. You can relate to it, though, can't you? You're in a corner. And you're racking your brain, and with all of your intellect, there's no way out. You're overpowered and you're overwhelmed. So it's a riddle you can't solve. It's a question you can't answer. It's a problem you can't fix. You're in a corner and there is absolutely no way out, at least by your own design and devices. And yet David says, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. And then he looks back into his past, this past that we've studied all year long, to the many times that he had found himself in a corner that he couldn't get out of. That should come to mind for you now, these stories and how God rescued him. And he says, you have given me relief. Literally, you've made room for me. You've made a way out for me when I was in distress, when I was trapped in corners like that before. And so now he says, be gracious to me again. Once again, he says, hear my prayer. Once again, give me the answer to the riddle, the answer to the question. Fix the problem. Let me out of the corner. And as I thought about that, I thought about David's drought. And I thought, okay, so what is it exactly that he needs? I mean, it's a drought, so he needs what? Rain. Okay, where does rain come from? Do you make the rain? Like you get your water bill at the end of the month and you think, good grief, we're spending this much on water? This is ridiculous, right? I mean, like, wait a minute. Why are we running the sprinklers? Honey, just tell me when you want it to rain. And I'll just set it according to the sprinkler schedule. We'll save some coin. Is that the way that it works? Like you were miffed at your neighbors with your, you know, because you have the trophy yard the last time that there was a drought because, you know, you don't even have sprinklers. You just make it rain on your yard alone. Is that the way that it works? Does the weatherman make it rain? The weatherman can't even predict when it's going to rain. Rain comes from heaven. And it's curious. I mean, I understand that we get scientifically how rain works. That's fine. But it's curious. It works that way by design. So by design, we stand on a planet in which the rain that we need and water represents life falls down literally on our head from above. Have you ever thought about that? The Lord designed it that way. Could have done it a different way. It's very creative. Rain comes from heaven. And that's true in the kind of drought that David is facing. It's true in the kinds of droughts that I face. It's true in your drought too. And so David says, you've given me relief, meaning in the past you've made a way out for me. You've made a a, a room for me. When, When I was in distress, when I've been trapped in corners before, and so now, oh God, be gracious to me again and once again, hear my prayer and deliver. And then he says something that I can resonate with, and that's probably not a good thing. He then says, oh men, and here's who he's talking about, men in the nation of Israel who have begun to forsake God and God's ability to deliver them because it's not three days, it's not three weeks, it's not three months. You know what? It's three years, lots of harvest seasons, lots of loss, no end in sight. He says to that 
crowd, how long shall my honor or my glory, the point being as your king, be turned into shame? Here's how this works. David is the God-ordained, God-anointed king of the whole nation of Israel, God's people. Okay. David, as that king, has been given a God-appointed privilege, and it is the God-appointed privilege of crying out to God on behalf of the whole nation when it's in distress, like, well, here. And the implication in that God-given privilege is that God will hear him when he does. But now it's three years. And, and the death number, the death toll is accumulating rapidly. And what's happening politically and spiritually within the nation is people are going, yeah, I don't think David has the ear of the Lord. They're abandoning the effectiveness of the prayers of their king in the midst of their pain. And the reason that speaks to me is because I think we do the same thing, only we do it with Jesus. It's like, Lord, I can trust you for three hours or three days or three weeks. I'm a little less happy with that. I'm not going to lie. Three months, it's pushing it. Three years, 13 years, 23 years. That's the temptation. You know what? Thanks, we've talked. You didn't come through. So now I'm going to go make rain for myself. Oh, really? You can make it rain? Is that the way it works? Rain comes from heaven. David is coming to us and he's saying, hey, listen, I get that temptation. Trust me on that one. I do. But when you're in the midst of a drought, that's exactly what you're not supposed to do. You don't run from the king. You run to him. And so he pleads for us. And he says, oh, men, how long shall my honor or my glory as your king be turned into shame because you've lost faith in the power of my prayers? And then he says, and how long will you love vain, or meaning worthless words, and seek after lies? So what's that about? What are the words and lies that he has in mind? He has in mind the words and the lies that come to us when the drought is at its most devastating point. When we hit year three, we're rounding the corner on that, and we're going, yeah, okay, Something's not working here, and we need relief. And they come to us, and they say, all right, you need to abandon your faith in Jesus, and you need instead to look for rain from other people and other places and other things. And David is saying, I can save you some time on this. Rain comes from heaven. I mean, it's, it's designed that way. And not just the physical, literal rain that you need for this physical, literal drought that David finds himself in, but whatever drought that we find ourselves in. Oh, you know what? God might use other people, other places, other things, but he is the source of all true rain, which means that if you find yourself in a financial drought and you've prayed for rain and, you know, man, the rain has not yet come, and you're thinking, all right, if I compromise my integrity, if I abandon my ethics, if I'm willing to do whatever it takes literally to make it rain, then, you know, it'll rain. And David says, well, it will rain, but it won't be the kind of rain that makes your life green. Because in doing that, you'll sacrifice the respect of your wife. In doing that, you'll sacrifice your ability to speak with moral authority to your kids. In doing that, you'll sacrifice your reputation and who knows what else depending upon how far you go. The rain you need comes from heaven. That's it. One place. Or if it's a relational drought that you're in, 
and you've prayed for rain and the rain hasn't come and loneliness is overwhelming. It eats away at your soul or so it seems. (laughs) So what do you want to do? Basically, whatever it takes. Isn't that true? I I want to find companionship here or here or here or here or here or here or here, but anywhere outside of the circle of in which I'm supposed to trust the Lord and obey Him. I'm just going to turn that sprinkler on in my life and see what grows. David's saying, okay, well, it won't be green grass. And all of us here today, and that's almost all of us here today, who have done that, knows that what grows is regret. It's heartache. There's a rain that ends droughts, but I can't make it. And neither can you if you're in emotional drought and you're seeking your happiness and your joy in the Lord. But, you know, just be honest, you're not happy or joyful. Don't look for it somewhere else. Cling to the Lord by faith. And so David says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words? They're worthless. And seek after lies. That's what you're not to do in the midst of a drought. So now what are we to do? He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And in saying that to his people, at that time he's talking about himself. But to us, well, our king's Jesus. And so he's coming to them and us, two very different kings, David and Jesus. And he's saying, listen, here's what you need to know. And know is an experiential word. I don't just know this academically. I know this by experience. I cling to this God who fills me with his spirit, who gives to me his word, who surrounds me with his people. And I am immersed in him. And I, by serving and living for him in this community, come to know and experience. You need to know in the midst of your drought that you have a king and that the Lord does, in fact, hear the prayers of your king. That's what he says next. He says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He has set apart King Jesus specifically to advocate for you. And don't miss this. Know that the Lord hears when I, David, call to him. Now listen, if he heard when David called to him, how much more does he hear when Jesus calls to him for you? I mean, David is a mere man, and we have seen evidence of his broken humanity for the last month or two. It's been tough. Jesus is the God-man. David sat on a little earthly throne in the little city of Jerusalem. Jesus sits on the throne of the universe. David governed over a strip of land that we today call Palestine. Jesus governs over all of heaven, and he governs over all of earth And he doesn't just cut out a little bit of time here and there every once in a while to pray for me or to pray for you. But instead, we're told in the New Testament that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And you've got to work that out in terms of his infinity. He's an infinite being. He's not like us in the sense that I'm limited. So if I'm going to intercede for each one of you individually, for example, man, I've got to lay out a calendar. On Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. for 10 seconds, because I've got hundreds of people to cover, I'm going to pray for Bill. And then right after that, I'm going to pray for Susan. And then right after that, I'm going to pray for whoever, you see? Just down the list. Not Christ. Our God is infinite. One of the glorious things about heaven is going to be that we're not going to have to like take a number like we're at the deli to spend time with Jesus. 
He has the capacity, and indeed does, give to give each one of us 100% of himself, 100% of his attention, 100% of the time. Stunning. That king ever lives to make intercession for you. He is ever focused on you and on your life, and he is ever advocating for you and for your life before Father God. And will the Father not hear his prayer? Will he not accede to the requests of the infinitely righteous one? And so then the question again is, well, all right, in light of that, why in the world would I ever forsake his prayers, doubt his advocacy, give up on him, and pursue rain, we'll put it in quotes, from something or someone else. David says, don't do it. And then he says in verse 4 that we should be angry. It means literally we should tremble with fear is the point at the idea of forsaking Christ and trying to make rain for ourselves. He says, be angry, tremble with fear at the thought of doing that, he's saying, and do not sin, don't do it. Then he says, ponder in your own hearts the foolishness of such a move, And do it on your bed. Now, why is that? It's kind of an interesting statement. Ponder in your hearts on your bed. I thought about that this week, and I think the reason for that is that's the place, and maybe the only place, where all the noise stops. I mean, all the kids are finally in bed, and, you know, we've shut the TV off, and we finally have shut it down, and we get in the bed, and we pull up the covers, and if you're like me, you're still awake. If you're like my wife, she's gone in like two seconds, just gone. And I'm so envious. So then I repent of my sin of envy. But all the noise stops. Except for the noise in here that you can now finally hear. Ponder in your heart. In a place of solitude and silence and without distraction. A place where hopefully you can maybe hear His voice speaking to you a place where you can root out any voices in you of temptation that are saying, you know what, forsake him, go this route. This is water, this is rain. It's not. David says, be angry, tremble with fear at the thought of doing such a thing, and do not sin, ponder the foolishness of such a move in your own heart, on your own bed, he says, and be silent that you might hear what's going on in here, and deal with it. And then he says, and offer right sacrifices. What he's saying there is, and then repent of your sin of doubt. And of all the different ways that every one of us has tried to make rain for ourselves. Oh God, I've tried to make my life green, and it's like an herbicide. Repent of your sin, and here it is. Put your trust in the Lord, for your king will not fail you. But here's the problem. He probably also won't deliver you how you want Him to and when you want Him to. And there's a humility that needs to be evidenced in us as we receive that. We've got to place ourselves under that and say, you know what, Lord, Uh, honestly, I think you ought to do it now, or even yesterday would have been better, but I'll take now. And I think you ought to do it this way. Really? Or can you just say, I entrust it to you? And you do it your way. And whatever way that is, well, then I confess that will be the best way. 
So he will deliver you how and when he wants. And between then and now, he'll sustain and see you through. You'll come to know him in the drought probably better than you ever otherwise could. And so then what David does is he kind of personally demonstrates the effects of this kind of trust. He says, there are many who say who will show us some good. And so David says, lift up the light of your face upon us, Lord. Look upon us with favor, he's saying. And then he says this, and notice now he says this while the drought's at its peak, while everybody's talking about what are the, what's wrong with the prayers of David, you know? There must be something in his spiritual life that is corrupt and God isn't listening to him. And look at all the bad things that he's done and they've got some stuff to to throw eggs at, don't they? In the midst of that, in the height of that, David says, you have put more joy in my heart, meaning even now in the midst of this devastating drought and all of its effects, than they, your critics, God, and my critics will have when their grain and wine abound, the point being as a result of the abundant rains that you, God, will most certainly send. And so then, in the peace that comes from knowing our king and trusting in him, David says, I will both lie down and sleep. It's a picture of a man at rest in the midst of chaos. I will both lie down and sleep. It's confidence that comes not from him. He's stuck in the corner. He's like, what is the riddle? You know, here, Lord, take the riddle. I will both lie down and sleep knowing you've got it. For you alone can make it rain. You alone make me to dwell in security and safety. So as we come to chapter 21, we find David and all the nation of Israel facing this drought. And even though, again, I think the biggest challenge we face is an ethical one, um, I think we can relate. Because God purposefully brings droughts into our lives as well. And they're difficult. They're desolating. And among their many purposes, they are to drive us to Him. And so then in Psalm 4, David comes to us and says, All right, I'm a little, I got a little experience in this area. So here's the deal. You're in a drought? Great. Here's what you need to know experientially. You don't need to be casually associated with this idea. You need to be heart and soul into the knowing of this. You need to know that you have a king, and in your case, he's far greater than David. He's Christ, that he has the ear of the heavenly Father who can deny him and will deny him nothing. And you need to trust that in his timing and in his way, which is the best way, he will deliver you, and in the knowledge of And the trust of that, you need to lie down and get some rest. You need to find joy and the ability to sleep. And then here's what not to do. Don't doubt Him. Don't doubt His love. Don't doubt His wisdom. Don't doubt His care for you. Don't doubt His power. Don't doubt whether or not He actually has your attention or whether he's too preoccupied because he's got a schedule to keep and he can't focus on, no, oh, no, wait, we covered that. He's, he's infinite. Don't doubt that he will in the end deliver you in a way that's better than any deliverance you could imagine or affect. Don't doubt those things. And don't look to other people or other things, even including yourself, for the rain 
that really and truly can come only from him. So I don't know how that applies in each one of your individual circumstances. I just trust that it does and that the Spirit of God can take it and say, okay, here's the message for you from this today. So let's pray that we all get the message. Father, we do thank you that there is rain in the heavens, purchased and laid up there by the eternal Son of God, who became a man and is a man for mankind, for us, for me, for everyone here who claims him, lived the only righteous, innocent life ever, and then laid his life down on a tree, on a mountain, in my place and theirs. Lord, that our sin might be forgiven, and that in the end, when your droughts have accomplished all of their good and, dare I say, even kind purposes for our lives, they might be eternally lifted with the kind of rain more refreshing than anything we can ask for or even imagine. We thank you, Lord, for him, and I pray that in our droughts, we run to him. In Christ's name, amen.